Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm speaking with director of photography Eduardo Mayen about his work on the second season of Hulu's science fiction comedy series, Future Man. The setup for Future Man takes its cues from the classic 80s movie, The Last Starfighter. A nobody named Josh, played by Josh Hutcherson, is the first person to complete the video game Biotic Wars. Upon doing so, he's recruited by the game's main characters, Tiger and Wolf, played by Eliza Coop and Derek Wilson, to wage war against the machines in real life. That's the first season, photographed by cinematographer Court Fay. In the second season, Josh, Tiger, and Wolf are thrust into an alternate future dimension where humanity clings to survival, and two of its last strongholds, the Luddites of the Nag and the Techno-Utopians of the Mons, are engaged in a civil war for the fate of the species. Eduardo has photographed a number of independent features in addition to TV shows, including El Rey's From Dusk Till Dawn, the CW's Black Lightning, and Amazon Prime's Gordimer Gibbons' Life on Normal Street, for which he received a Daytime Emmy nomination for Outstanding Single Camera Photography. According to him, Future Man's writers and producers, including executive producer Seth Rogen, fostered an environment of creative expression and experimentation, something that's not always possible in the fast-paced world of television production. I spoke with Eduardo by phone to learn more about his experience making the show, and discuss what, if anything, separates film from television, and even project a little bit into the future. Okay, here we go. First question. Some cinematographers will make a distinction between film and television as far as mediums are concerned, Um, but as a TV show, Future Man is indebted to both. Cinema visually and television situationally, is that a fair assessment? Uh, Well, I think think TV has changed. You know, I I think TV now... I feel like movies are borrowing from TV and back and forth. It's, it's, it's a, it's an ecosystem, not just visual language, but even actors, you know, you had your TV actors and you had your movie actors. And now I see somebody really good on TV. And then all of a sudden I see them on a big Spielberg movie and then they go back to their TV show. I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting time right now. And with this show, yes, we were doing episodic, but we weren't thinking, Oh, we're shooting TV. We were just shooting a 13-part sci-fi post-apocalyptic movie. And that's how we approached it, you know, from how we stage things, how we block things, shooting with prime lenses, anamorphic. We started joking about it. We started calling it Feature Man instead of Future Man. (laughs) Who sets the tone of the series? I I think that was set in in the pilot. I I think Seth... Rogan directed a, a pilot that's huge and it sets up the gauntlet for this big, epic, episodic saga. And uh, they did that in season one and they wanted to push it even more in season two by having all these alternative timelines and using time travel rules to explore shit that we've always wanted to explore, especially because you had these people who were screwing up the timelines and that's what makes it interesting and makes it really funny as well 
Were you asked to adhere to the work that was done by Court Fay in the first season, or were you allowed to kind of put your own stamp on the show? I, I feel like I was never micromanaged on the show, which was great. You know, they just, they, I, they always smile and say, it looks beautiful. And that was, that was flattering. Um, early on when they, they, you know, kept thanking me for making the show look so pretty. And I was just doing my thing, you know, it, it, and that's what I loved about it, that it was my aesthetic as well, making it dark, making it edgy, mixing color temperatures. It matched my aesthetic. So it was perfect. And, and I had a really good gaffer who I had, who was my first time collaborating with it, Len, Len Levine, who was very creative and very knowledgeable. My whole team was great. My key grip, John Day, my first to see Jay Levy, who he was such a champion because he had to keep track of all these different formats that we had to shoot because um, the, the show was shot 235, anamorphic, but distribution for other platforms was mandated to 69. And so because of these extractions, we we had to keep in mind, well, first of all, protect for 69, which was tricky. And then after you went beyond um, 60 frames a second, because you were already doing an extraction of the sensor. Real quick, what camera uh, were you using? It was the, the helium. And so we had to look out for all these different extractions. Sometimes we would have to shoot a spherical because we didn't have enough resolution. Sometimes we would change the resolution to hold for the wide angle lenses. For wide angle lenses too, we had to change the the resolution and it would also change our field of view on the lenses. So we had, you know, we helped ourselves because it was hard to, once you started doing all this stuff, your, your, your finder meant nothing. So my, my, my little Mark V Gordon Enterprise binder was useless. So we had to help ourselves with this Artemis, the proper onset finder that has the little iPad on the back and the PL mount. And we would input all these different formats in order for get to get the right field of view for framing. Even, you know, even uh, a preview of a frame was a challenge on the show. But then you look at the results and it was worth it. Considering that you had so much creative leeway on this show, what did you want it to look like? Well, you know, the, the writers, I remember one of the writers like, well, it just does, just, does not look like your typical comedy. And I like it. <laughs> it. It was supposed to look like that genre that they're paying homage to. And in this case, it was a sci-fi apocalyptic movie. You know, we would use fire and and I, I love lighting with fire because it feels so primal. <laughs> and then, you know, in the nag specifically, there's no technology. So we had to come up with other ways of not just fire. We use obviously daylight during the day. But then there was this thing that that the writers came up with that the, the all being this this giant being that they eat is also bioluminescent. So they can use it as a light source, which was a great opportunity because bioluminescent. I went to a bioluminescent bay once, and it, it's gorgeous. It's like Avatar, right? The bluish green. And so we came up with this cocktail on on with gels, and we would make little can lights with LEDs with this color, and the mix of that that bluish cyan, bluish green cyan, and the fire is just gorgeous. And sometimes I would do it with daylight as well, because um, some of the corners in the and um, the nag, especially the wheel shop, was so dark. And so I got, you know, I had warm fire. I had 
the cyan, I had the daylight, and it was fun because I felt like we were inventing things that don't exist. And actually, and I borrowed some stuff from things that I heard or, or research that I'd done of how they do lighting in shanty towns where there's hardly any light. And there was this article and or a story on NPR about, I think it was the Philippines and these places where they hardly get any light and they collect light with water bottles and tiny little holes and they become lamps. And so we replicated those and put them on top of the, on top of the wheel shop to create another light source. I hardly used them because it would kill a lot of the, it, it, it lit, it was more practical than, no pun intended, it was more practical than to create mood. And obviously because they, they used them in these places in the Philippines or Brazil to light a room. And I wanted to not light the room too much because <laughs> I still wanted to keep it moody, but sometimes it, would, it served as a motivation. It was a light source. So instead of asking about the show's influences, because this show wears its influences on its sleeve. Yeah. Like a badge of honor. <laughs> right. I mean, was it difficult to put that out of your mind that you're in some respects paying homage to something that's already been seen while at the same time trying to establish a unique visual identity? That's an interesting question. Um, my background is, is doing a lot of street photography and some of my mentors were very naturalistic in the way they're they're lighting. Talking specifically about lighting, I was always trying to motivate by by something existing by fire or in this case bioluminescent lights daylight so i was definitely motivated by nature but at the same time i wanted to enhance it because it was a sci-fi show so i could be a little bolder with my choices obviously the 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 sets would lend itself to the style of the show too we try not to just do coverage you know design shots that meant something that had a beginning a middle and an end as opposed to, you know, standard TV coverage. And that was the fun thing about doing these, these streaming shows that they actually want to take the time to do something that feels cinematic, for lack of a better word. And when you talk about shots that have beginnings, middles, and ends, you're talking about... A, Tell a story, you know. The shots that express a complete thought. Yeah. Or an idea, right? And, and it's funny because there was a scene that wasn't in... Well, I don't want to spoil it. Maybe I shouldn't talk about it because it's going to be good. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about spoilers just because we're hoping that people have already seen the show. Yeah. Well, the, the producers told me to be careful with spoilers. But but yeah. But I, I remember at some point Seth was one, in one of the episodes and he was watching what we were doing and we were deciding the shot. And he's like, let's do some Spielberg shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, as a cinematographer, what is your ideal relationship status let's say, with the director or producer, as the case may be? Well, you know, I, I definitely like to spend time with the director. And it's funny because with some of my favorite collaborators, most of the time we spend in the meeting, we don't exactly talk about the show, but we show stuff that we like and bring our laptops and we watch a lot of YouTube videos and photos and, and shoot the shit and kind of figure out what we each other like and then that gets the creative juices flowing then all of a sudden we start working and so that's what i like to do on future man and, and other shows that i've done you know i know you mentioned gordimer and black lightning i like to spend time with the director and i bring my little lego man <laughs> it's funny we try to print out the overheads of the plots of the sets and obviously after we we talked about movies and music videos that we like and shows that we like all of a sudden we start doing work again. We start going through the script and 
I like using the Lego man to kind of block the scene. And that way I can think ahead about lighting. And also we can start thinking ahead about shot. This. That's how we design shots. You know, we use the little Lego man and the little brads from the script as a camera angle. And it's like, okay, this could be a good angle. And then, and then we could take it. And then the AD is also listening. And it's like, oh, and then we could shoot it this way to be more efficient with time. And, you know, maybe we don't do the master first, but we know that we're going to do a master, but we could do the, this close up and this insert or this close up and this other piece. And so everybody is on the same page of what we want to do. It doesn't feel haphazard. And the more I could do that, the more the visual language of the show feels intentional. And then that's when we come up with transitions too, which I'm a big fan of that. You can go from one scene to the other and make it seem like everybody, everything has been thought of as opposed to just pieced together in editorial. So getting into the specifics of the show, we have these two main locations, the Mons and the Nag, which are two of the remaining human strongholds in uh, Santa Clarita, California yes. anyway. And <laughs> you have the former, which is this kind of Burning Man meets Apple Store Society, and the latter, which is this kind of Burning Man meets a hole in the ground. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to talk about the different photographic challenges that were posed by these very different places. Yeah, you know, and the the Mons also to add to that, the Mons includes Sanistu, which is all its own monster. Which right, Sanistu, that's um, Haley Joel Osment's character Stu yes. from the first season has uploaded his consciousness to a computer and is like now this malevolent AI, right? And he he controls the Mons. Yeah, the Nag, the Mons, and Sanistu were all different challenges in different ways. But the advantage that we had is that in pre-production, we were able to sit with Jess Kender, the production designer, Len Levine, the gaffer, and John Day, the key grip, and basically designed the lighting into the sets. Specifically, Sanistu, I was able to say, I want a light here, I want a light here, I want a light there. And then sometimes were lights that we would see on set that we could photograph, and so we would include the decorator. And then it was... The source that we would use whenever we could was LEDs. That way we can control it. I could dim it, change the color temperature on command. And sometimes we couldn't and we had to gel and that became a little clunky, but we already had it down to a science and the grips already had the gels cut. And it was like, okay, we're going to daylight or we're going to nighttime. You know, we need to bring down the level. They would slap the gel on and we knew exactly what it was. In the nag, it was a, the big challenge was creating the daylight there because you needed to create the shafts of light of hard light in order to sell that we were not on stage and we needed a bunch of them. And I felt like it was never enough. And we would actually, for the big white shot, sometimes we would sub rent uh, some of those big light movers. Like I call them the disco lights because they were controlled by the dimmer board operator. We could put our hot spots wherever we want to with a little smoke. It started coming to life because how we lit that space, we had LED tubes over all the ceiling with diffusion, and that was our base of daylight. And then we created little hotspots here and there. And so sometimes, you know, when we had to do these big moving shots in the nag and look in different directions, it, it, it took a while. We needed, we needed um, pre-calls because every little hotspot was done by hand. Uh, granted, we, we programmed a lot of this stuff, but sometimes the characters will move to it. 
and we had big walk and talks. The most challenging thing for us was shooting in the nag during day and doing big walk and talks because, you know, those hard sources of light would look beautiful in the background, hitting a really dark piece of set dressing. But as soon as an actor walked through it, it needed to be controlled. And another big challenge was the wheel shop because it was tiny. The floor was uneven, so it was hard to move the dollies. <laughs> it was hard to rig anything on the walls because it's steel. And there was this beautiful um, finishing on the walls to create the texture. And you couldn't even put magnets on them. We literally had to drill into the wall to hide lights. The more we shot in there, the faster it got. But I, whenever I saw the wheel shop and the costume, I knew that it was going to be a, a time challenge. The nag is primarily a stage, right? Interiors and exteriors. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, we're still shooting on stage, but recreating an exterior. Um, if you don't do it right, it starts looking fake. And I wanted the audience to believe that we were in this place. And as far as the Mons goes, there's some exterior action, but most of it takes place in Xanastu, this white-walled, futuristic villain's lair with floor-to-ceiling windows set into the side of a cliff that overlooks the Mons camp. There was also a stage that was tiny. <laughs> the backing was right up against us. Also, we didn't have a lot of clearance on top to hide this disco light movers, the, the hard lights, which is how I created shafts of light, apart from the all the soft light that I was pushing in from outside, pushing a big soft source and then little streaks of light to create the sensation of real daylight, like it was a real window. The backing, it's a trans light, correct? Yeah, it's front light during the day and it's backlit at night. And, you know, in the day I, I front lit it and I made sure that it was bright, like you would on location, right? That it didn't look too good. I wanted to make it look bright and hot outside. And at night, it was challenging because it was right there. And I wanted to keep Santa's too moody, too. So a lot of the light that I was using to light the translate was bleeding into the set. So I had to work at really low light levels in order to keep it moody. That window was a challenge in that room. But it also served a lot of opportunities because you had a big light source. And that was the beauty of being able to, pre-production, design the lighting. And then you, when you go into... Tyan's room. And Tyan, uh, that's Stu's daughter, who's a clone of the tiger character. Yes. That was where I moved the fastest because I knew I had control of every light in there. And sometimes I just lit with the practicals and just hit a little bit of a light just off camera to put a little light on um, Eliza. That was like our most efficient set. I didn't have to deal with a lot of windows. It was just a skylight from above to put a little shaft of light in the room. And then everything else was lit with practicals and practicals that we designed specifically to our needs. Did the show's alternate timelines provide you with an opportunity to be more expressive with your photography? Yeah, definitely. The, the different timelines, specifically the exteriors, there's more freedom because we don't know what's going to happen. And with the, the ecological disaster that we're creating, um, I feel like the quality of the light is going to change. And I'm sure it's changed from, you know, before the industrial revolution, I guess. I mean, maybe I'm just getting to thinking about it too much, but I, I think that eventually as, you know, let's say worst case scenario, <laughs> worst case scenario, the light is going to look different because it's, it's coming through different filters and there's different 
things in the atmosphere. And so I thought, oh, maybe this is an opportunity to to push it in that direction and make things look redder, more amber outside. And, you know, I pushed and then Seth pushed even more, <laughs> which, like I said, you know, when it's coming from the top that you bold and cinematic, it's inspiring because sometimes at network shows, they tell me scale that is, you know, bring it back down. And in these kind of shows are like, be even more expressive. That was the fun thing about the show. Across the board, nothing was crazy enough. <laughs> and they kept topping themselves. Well, it's like there are so many TV shows and films online nowadays that you kind of have to, right? Yeah. Because if you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing, then there's no incentive for the viewer to stick around and, and see what happens next. You have to stand apart. And also these, these streaming networks are streaming platforms, or how do we call them? Streaming platforms are... First of all, they're, they don't have to deal with advertisers. And also, they know what people watch because they have all the data. So they understand their audience better than anybody else. And so they can make a show that's specifically tailored for an audience they want to reach. And then they just go with it. It's interesting to see what comes out the other side of that. Because you can look at Future Man, in one sense, as the product of a metric. But because Hulu sees it as as a, a kind of a sure thing, the filmmakers don't have to pull any punches. And, and also there's no advertisers. And you don't have to worry about offending viewers because those people are off watching something that's been particularly crafted to their taste. That's the beauty of, of the, this new era of TV, that it, it gives opportunities to filmmakers to really express themselves and do something interesting through our 13 episode arc and really develop characters and storylines and and not and not sacrifice quality. We've been talking a lot about going further and being over the top. But before that, before we started recording, we were talking about Alexander Dynan's interview about First Reformed. And I'm reminded of what he was saying about withholding the things that aren't expressed. And now I wonder if there was any room for that kind of approach while making a show like Future Man. <sighs> Well, you know, this show is nuts, right? I, I feel like this is the kind of show that's not holding back. <laughs> uh, and it, it set the tone itself of being out there. And the crazier the show got, the funnier it got. Well, how crazy is too crazy? That's a very good question. I mean, you saw the show. <laughs> one, of those, one of those scenes, the, the sewing scenes... Uh, happened in my birthday. It was really funny. And you say sowing like sowing seed. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but um, and that was a challenge too because I had all these different bodies in a, in a bed. I've never had to light an intimate scene with so many bodies at the same time. And uh, I had all these stand-ins in a bed contorted. And Talking about stand-ins, the stand-ins on these show were really, really good. I, I like to always choose them because they always help you. They can, they can really make your life difficult if you don't have a stand-in who's paying attention and helping you out with the lighting. Because there's, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff I want to do if if I don't get a chance to do it right with the standing afterwards is going to fall apart once first team gets on set. 
especially in a scene like this where you have six people in a bed and if the standings are not helping you out, then you're, you're, you're dead. <laughs> Let's talk about the scene where Stu takes Tiger into this taco truck computer simulation and he's trying to convince her to stay there with a musical number. Well, that was fun. Um, the musical number, I did that with the director Tamara Davis and it's a taco truck in the middle of a parking lot and there's all these dancers. There's this whole choreography. And we, it was supposed to be all daytime, but it would it would have been nuts. So we decided to to have the fantasy be at night so we could have more control. And so I pre-lit everything before with a huge softbox on top and and a big backlight it was very stylized. And it gave us a lot of freedom so we could focus on getting all the pieces of coverage. It's interesting that you shot it outside because it actually looks more like a stage than a night exterior. That was the idea. It's supposed to feel nostalgic and, and we color timed it to make it really pop and saturated and contrasty because it had to contrast with the reality of the, what they're trying to escape. Right. So instead of this radioactive hellscape, we have this elaborate fantasy that's set up to remind us of an old studio musical, which now that I think of it, still isn't that far out for this show. That's kind of how I approached it, but I also wanted to give it our own little spin. And it's Tiger's world. So after Tiger talks about her her sugar fantasy, I thought, well, let's push it in that direction of what her escapism would be. And so just be very bold with the choices and color light, green backlight and reds and yellows. It was supposed to feel like a sugar rush, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I now and I never thought about it, but I'm, I'm thinking about it now, you know, in hindsight, I guess that's what set it up for me of how to approach the scene, her whole little story about tasting sugar for the first time. And I guess since that was escapism for her there, and then this was another form of escapism. And also we wanted to experience it through her. That's why we did these POVs of when they're spinning the camera, which I did with my trusty A7S, which I love. And I have this great 12 millimeter Voigtlander lens that I tend to always squeeze into one of the shows because you can create these awesome POVs with a, with a motorcycle helmet. And then when she looks at her hands or when they're spinning each other, it, it, it really looks like it's the actor's POV. I, I love that because you get this, this cool perspective that you're not used to seeing, especially when, when somebody's looking at their, their own hands. It's really cool. And their body. We're going to get into some deep spoiler territory right now uh, with this one other set that you wanted to talk about, Supermax, this glass prison from the fourth millennium where our so-called heroes are faced with this kind of Seinfeldian reckoning for the way that they've gone about screwing with time uh, over the course of the last two seasons. Supermax was fun to design, but it was a pain in the butt to shoot. So it was a glass prison. And we had to light it practically, basically, because there was no way to use any other kind of lighting. I mean, I cheated a little bit sometimes, but I would bring sources that would match the shape and size of what was in the prison. So if you picked up a reflection, it would look like it belonged. And the prison is made up of these different chambers all in a single room. It's one set in a black stage you know, 40 feet across. And what were the dividers, the, the, the clear translucent panels made out of? It was all glass, all gimbaled glass. 
And I designed the lighting again with Len and Jess based on the needs of the script and light changes. There was some hybrid ribbon that could go between tungsten and daylight and RGB ribbon to create the red light. Tungsten wasn't as clean and daylight wasn't as clean, but we needed the effect uh, of red light as well and being able to change color on command and dim up and down. So that was designed in pre-production. But then shooting it, everybody had to wear black. We were all wearing black. There was always, when the camera came in, we would create a, a tent around and I would have to help myself with longer lenses. Basically, protect the lens across the board, down to the map box. You know, nothing could really show. Sometimes I would have to get rid of the map box. It was picking up light if we were too close and you would see a little bit of the map box. And also in post, they helped me. They erased some of that stuff. But it was a challenge to to do interesting shots in there with movement because a little bit to the left, a little to the right, and all of a sudden you would see the company. Were you always on primes or did you use zooms as well? I used zooms a couple times when we were on a crane maybe, but most of the time it was primes. You know, they just look so much better and especially anamorphic. And I used the, the, the anamorphic lenses that I used were Panavision G series and Panavision E series for the two longer focal lengths. I honestly like the older, the E and C series, but on a TV show, you really have to be conscious of time and also getting matching sets because C's and E's are gorgeous, and but they're older handmade lenses that you would have to, you, ha you have to basically create your set by hand to see what matches the most. And then to create a second set, if you're going to have multiple cameras, then it was more practical to shoot with the G series that are the same across the board. They're, they're also the same size. That way lens changes are a little faster with older, older Panavision anamorphic lenses. They're all different sizes. And so you would have to need a new donut rods and everything, but they're gorgeous. <laughs> they're beautiful. I remember when we were slap on the 135 or the 180, it just it had a different character. Just, uh, it, it felt, it felt like those old movies, you know, and the, and, and the G series are gorgeous. They're beautiful, but they're just feel a little cleaner. You said that you used long lenses on the Supermax set. And I'm wondering what's long for this show? Well, an anamorphic, I would say above a 60, just so I could stay away from the reflections. If I went wider than a 60, I would start seeing things that I shouldn't be seeing. And you used Polarizers? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would help myself with polarizers too. But also you have to remember that I only had so much light. Well, what did you rate the camera at? 800. I could have gotten away with 1280 or 1600 sometimes, but I, I like a really clean image. Visual effects play a huge role on this show. Mats, squibs, twinning characters. What role did they play in your photographic process? Well, I mean, visual effects is like another character in the show. We would have all these meetings and we would previous some stuff that was a little bit more complicated. We would have to sometimes have playback on set in order to see how the twinning is going to work and make sure that the eye lines were right. Because, you know, on all these alternate realities, the characters would either play themselves and have a twin or the same actor would play another character. Compared to season one, you were working with a relatively smaller budget, but it also sounds like you had to go further than before. And on top of that, you were responsible for every episode in season two. 
Well, you know, being the only cinematographer on a show is a blessing and a curse because you get to basically dictate the look of the show yourself. You don't, you don't, you don't share any duties and you can make all the decisions, which is fantastic, but then you don't have a life and you can't prep. You're always catching, playing catch up. And, and, and I had a, a incredible team. So that helped, you know, scouts, for example, and they knew what I liked and what I didn't like. And they were looking out for things and they would bring me comprehensive notes and photos, but it was at lunch or after work or before work. And so it was, it was a demanding job, but then as a DP, it's my show. And I'm really proud of it because it, it looks great and it's really funny. People love it. So you, you get to, you get the bragging rights, I guess, but it's exhausting. <laughs> Let's talk about post-production for streaming platforms. You put all this effort into the show so that it looks and it feels a certain way, but yet people may be watching Future Man on an iPhone, on the subway, in a bright kitchen, definitely not on a calibrated monitor. Is that something that you need to keep in mind when you're on set, the way that you light, the way that you frame a shot that looks good to you right now in these under these ideal conditions, even when you're in the color grade, in your dark room, on your calibrated monitor? That's, that's my eternal heartbreak about doing TV. The control that you have when you make features, because I feel like there's a little bit more control with a DCP and projectors, although there's also, also variables. I try not to think about it. I try to maybe pretend, maybe I'm being naive that people are watching it in optimal conditions and in good TVs. I actually, I still have a plasma because I still watch my Blu-rays and they look fantastic in it. But I feel like with all these streaming platforms, they're optimized for HDR. I mean, ever since I, start, I started with Gordimer Givens doing, that was my first streaming show. And that was actually still in, when it was the Wild West, we were one of the first shows to do an HDR finish. And it was just for experimental, part, and we were doing 4K. You know, we were one of the first ones in 4K. But then it didn't really, the technology wasn't there altogether to translate HDR or the color timing that we were doing, the, the slick, high-end color finishing for all these different ways of watching. And so it was all over the place. But now the technology's gotten much better. And I know that the, the finishing was done at Picture Shop for Future Man. Shane Harris was our colorist. And we color timed everything in HDR. And then there's this box. Well, it was Dolby Vision, HDR Dolby Vision. And then they have this box called the CMU. That's um, basically their proprietary hardware that translates the color timing instructions into a Rec. 709 SDR grade, standard dynamic range grade, automatically. And then Shane sits through that grade and does what's called a trim pass and adjusts for things that the box maybe couldn't interpret properly and, and just minor tweaks. So it basically takes into consideration other viewing platforms but there's always variables right you know how like you said people are watching in a bright kitchen or they're watching it at walmart in the wall of television i, I don't think future man will be playing at walmart but um in a bright space or they haven't gotten the, rid of the motion blur which was a thing maybe that's the future you know netflix having an academy award winning movie and they they're such big players maybe they'll figure out a way with 
TV manufacturers to figure out a way uh, with software and hardware to make viewing a little bit more standardized. It's like if you're using a smart TV with Netflix installed, Netflix knows what kind of TV you're using. And when it loads your movie, it also loads the proper settings. Yes. And, and, and I know they're investing a lot in this technology. I was actually reading about it, that they it's Netflix and Google and all these technology companies are investing in new ways of compression and understanding also how your internet is working, how fast it is. Cause you know, with this net neutrality laws, the future is a little uncertain for these streaming platforms because you don't, it'll be a little bit of a conflict of interest (laughs) for the cable providers who are also the internet providers, because you're basically providing the platform for them to show off their product. As far as making these decisions about how a film looks on a given platform, how do you feel about a computer making those choices. Right now it's still mediated and supervised by a human being, but like what's the future look like? Well, I think that's where they're going. I think it's it's all AI and you know, it, it's gonna get better and better. AI assisted cinematography. <laughs> yeah. Well, at distribution for sure, you know how how well I mean it's all part of the pipeline. <clears throat> like you were saying before, it's easier to have control over how people see your films if it's on a DCP because you've had as a cinematographer, have, have had direct control in calibrating your work for a particular type of presentation. Whereas with streaming, what we're talking about is doing that once, having a computer do the rest of your work. Yes. Well, well also a, a human being supervises a computer, but then it goes out into the world. But yeah, maybe in the future, the TV will sense that the lights are on in the room and it'll compensate for that. So, I mean, you always want a human component to the process, no matter what. Yes. Yeah. Do you see a kind of industry standardization for streaming compression in our future? Yeah, but it, it's it's going to have to come from the TV manufacturers too, and the streaming companies of how they compress and how they deliver, and what kind of technology they're using to translate all these instructions, all this metadata, basically how to how to use this metadata to keep the original intention intact. When do you personally feel okay with letting go of your work? When you're finished with your timing, with your color timing, that's when it it goes off your hands. Right, and at a certain point, you just kind of have to take the audience out of the equation. Yeah, and with movies, you can actually supervise, you know, you can do your DCP and you can actually take the time to do a test and project it and then you go home and you feel good about it, that that at least you... Your master DCP looks like your intention. And, you know, in TV shows and films in general that engage the viewer and grab their attention, and this is not to denigrate the visual qualities of something, but it almost doesn't matter how you shoot it. You could shoot it any way you wanted, as long as you convey the intent properly. You've served the story, so to speak. I totally agree with that, actually. I mean, that's what makes it great, because the writers are amazing, the jokes are funny, and so it was up to me to keep up with their work. and so. That underlines the work because it makes it funnier because we took we took the visual seriously, but it's a comedy. I think that's actually a pretty good place for us to end our conversation. Good chat. Good chat. Eduardo, thank you so much for being here today with us and uh, talking about your work on this really funny show. Thank you so much for doing this. This is exciting. Um, I hope that we haven't spoiled it 
too badly for the people who haven't seen it. And if we, even if we have, Eduardo, your producers can blame me, <laughs> right? And everyone else should still watch the show because there are bigger surprises in store than the ones that we spoiled today. That was cinematographer Eduardo Mayen talking about his work for the Hulu series, Future Man. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles on the art and craft of cinematography at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. <laughs>